Okay. Well, good morning, church. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer together before we open up God's word. As I pray, I'm going to read from Psalm 19. So that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Father, this morning we turn to your word. Uh, your word that revives our soul, that makes wise the simple, that rejoices the heart, that enlightens the eyes, that endures forever. I pray, Lord, that you would magnify your son Jesus through the teaching of your word. Uh, recognized uh, this morning that, um, as Paul said, our, our, my life, our lives are not of any value if only we may complete the course that you've set out for us by testifying to the gospel of grace. And I pray that your word would do that, that our songs would do that, that our prayers would do that, and this preaching would do that, that we would testify to the greatness of your grace. Thank you for your son, Jesus. I pray that we really would magnify him here, now as always, so that we, like Paul, would one day be able to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So you may be magnified this morning, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, hey, good morning. Um, if you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and turn with me to the book of Philippians. So we are in the book of Philippians. If you're new with us or uh, maybe you've missed the last several weeks, this is week number four in our new series of the book of Philippians. And for some of you, you're so excited that we're finally going to move out of chapter one, but not so fast, okay? Because as I was preparing this week, um, I, I sensed pretty strongly we need to come to a screeching halt. In fact, what we're going to do is we're going to spend the next three weeks in a single text. I know, you thought we were going to go fast. We're not. We're going to slow down. Because the, the goal here isn't speed, right? The goal is not for us just to move through the book of Philippians. The goal is depth. The, the goal isn't for us to just come in and get a bunch of information. The goal is for allow, to allow the Word of God to really transform us, right? The last thing I would want for any of you is to come here and, and kind of nibble on some crumbs of God's Word when what we have, as Psalm 19 says, is something that will revive your soul that will make wise the simple, that will rejoice your heart, that will enlighten your eyes. So I pray that we can just slow down and really feast on the Word of God. And I, I can't think of a better text to do that with than ours today. So what is that text? It's Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 26. One of the more popular and famous scriptures, something you've probably heard before. Beautiful passage of scripture, and I just want us to slow way down and feast on it together. So let me read for us. This is Philippians chapter 1, verse 18. Our text actually begins in kind of 18b, but I'm going to read all of 18 all the way down to verse 26 for us. It says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage. Now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart, to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So convinced of this, I know I'll remain, continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith, so that in me you have, may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus 
because of my coming to you again. Familiar passage, right? So this is the text we're going to spend the next three weeks over, but today I'm going to, I'm going to really hone in on the first four verses, okay? 18 to 21. We're going to really camp out in 18 to 21. So today our text is a continuation from our text of last week. Right? Maybe you were here last week, you remember Coleman preached that, that what has happened, Paul's imprisonment, he says, by the sovereignty of God, has really been used by God to advance the kingdom of God. That since he's now in prison, the whole imperial guard is aware that his imprisonment was on behalf of this man named Jesus Christ. But the second outcome of Paul's imprisonment is that other Christians there in Rome where he's in prison, but also in the city of Philippi, they're aware that, that Paul's example of, of being emboldened and being passioned while in prison has, has kind of paid off. It's begun to spur a boldness in them. So they are beginning to proclaim the gospel with even more courage. And Paul says, man, because you guys are empowered to preach the gospel in my example, I rejoice. That's what he says. I rejoice. So he's looking at his present circumstances and how his present circumstances have been used to further the kingdom of God. And he says, I rejoice. But look at our verse here, 18b. This is kind of where that his focus begins to shift. He says, yes, and I will rejoice, right? His focus is no longer on the present. It's now on the future. He's beginning to look forward and he's saying, there's also more cause to rejoicing. There's some more rejoicing coming. So what is it that he's going to lead, that's going to lead to this future rejoicing? Well, the answer is found in verse 20, that alongside the prayers of the church and alongside the supernatural supply of the spirit, Paul eagerly expects and confidently hopes that now as always, Christ will be honored. He says, in that I'll rejoice. Christ will be honored. The cause of his future rejoicing, you all, is in the fact that Christ will be honored. It will happen. 100% sure, without a doubt, Paul is convinced that Christ will be honored. But the means to which he will be honored by is, is totally unsure. Right? Up in the air. Incredibly uncertain. Right? He says... It's going to be, though, two options, whether by my life or by my death, Christ will be honored. But isn't it a profound that he's saying, I, honestly, I don't care. He says, maybe it's my life, maybe it's my death. That doesn't matter. The means are, don't matter to me. What matters is that Christ will be honored, and in that I will rejoice. This church's honor is rejoicing is due to the fact that Christ will be honored. It's all because Paul isn't preoccupied with his own fate. He's only consumed with a singular desire that whatever happens may result in Jesus Christ being honored. He writes that that's his hope. Paul's hope is that Christ will be honored. And y'all, we cannot confuse the biblical idea of hope for the way that we tend to use the phrase hope, right? So we say things like, I hope it doesn't rain today, right? That's, that's kind of like this wishful thinking. We don't really care. We're just kind of saying this wish that we hope that it doesn't rain again. Here's another phrase that I've been using a lot over the last month, and I'm not going to look in this section because we have some fans in the room. I hope that Michigan's national championship gets vacated. Like I do. It's something that I hope for, and I'm not going to look at Patrick or Danielle. I got some thumbs up though, so you guys are, okay. That's not the biblical concept of hope. That's just some wishful thinking. Biblical hope comes with a confident expectation in fact, Paul, in this text, couples it with an eager expectation. He says, it's my eager expectation. It is my confident hope that Christ will be honored. The Greek behind the eager expectation denotes this idea of you're kind of like craning your neck to see what's coming. 
It's like I, I'm going to keep my eyes open. I don't want to blink because I'm afraid if I blink, I'm going to miss it. There's this anticipation in Paul going, Christ is going to be honored, and I can't wait to see how it's going to happen. Y'all, what's taking place here in this text is so profound. Like, don't miss how profound this is. He is sitting in a Roman prison awaiting a verdict. Either he's going to be released and live, or he's going to be found guilty and die. But he goes, you know what, I, I don't care. I just want Christ to be honored. And he says, and in that, because Christ will be honored, I'm going to rejoice. Church, there is no purer desire than that the whole of your life would enhance the glory of Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? There is no better desire for any of us to have than to let the whole of our life, every minute, every moment, every matter, to live to enhance the glory of Jesus Christ because he alone is worthy of it all. Like to represent him so well in your living and in your dying. To care exclusively for his fame and his esteem, not your own. So we would live in such a way that we decrease so much that Jesus Christ increases all the more. That word honor means to enlarge, right? It, it means to magnify. And as I was thinking about a way to illustrate this idea of honoring Jesus, I actually thought about a magnifying glass. But the more I thought about a magnifying glass, I realized that that's a, that's a misleading representation. Because a magnifying glass, like the old school magnifying glass, by nature does what? It takes something that is small and enhances it, right? It, it, it makes it larger. It enlarges it. But that is a misleading representation because we cannot do anything to Jesus' largeness, right? There's nothing that you and I can do to actually enhance his largeness. Like He is just that large. Like He is the real deal. We can't make him any bigger. So you and I can't live lives that, that magnify his magnificence because he is utterly magnificent, right? In him we live and move and have our being. He gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. There's nothing that you and I can do to make him better or greater in that sense, right? So the magnifying glass is, is really not a, a great image for us as we're trying to understand what it means to honor Jesus. So here, here's one I did think of. I think we can be the moon. You did not see that coming, did you? Okay. So what does the moon do? For all of you weird boating enthusiasts, right, the moon gives you tides. But something else that the moon does is it, it gives us light, right? It gives light. But many of you probably haven't taken a science class in a while, so let me help us understand this. Does the moon produce its own light? What does it do? It reflects the sun. So here's how that analogy works for us, right? The, the, the moon isn't a source of its own light, just as we as Christians aren't the source of, of Jesus' grandness. But what we can do is we can be the moon. We can let Jesus Christ beam on us and, and radiate on us, and in our lives, we can just reflect that. We can reflect his goodness. We can reflect his magnificence. So when Paul is talking about whether for me to live is Christ, to die is gain, like all I want is Christ to be honored, he just says, I want Christ to be reflected in my life. I want everybody, when they see me, whether I'm living or whether I'm dying, did you hear that? I'm going to spend a whole week on to die as gain. But, but even in your dying, Christian, may your dying be done in such a way that it reflects Jesus Christ. Paul's saying, that's my all-consuming passion. And he summarizes that passion in verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What he means by that is I just want to honor Jesus with every breath of my life, every minute, every moment. I just want to reflect him. So church, the question is, can you say the same? Can, can you say my singular, my singular passion in life is to reflect Jesus? 
Man, I, I let that question search me this week, and I have to honestly, with integrity, stand up here and say, no, it, it's not for me. Are, are there days? For sure. Moments? Yeah. But every day, every moment, every matter is my singular, all-consuming passion to reflect Jesus in all that I am and all that I do. No, I, I'm still in progress. But church, let me tell you, I, I do believe that it's possible. I think it's possible. I believe that this lifestyle lived to reflect Jesus in all that we have. I believe that it's attainable. Because I think it's why Jesus called you and saved you so that we would, by definition, be a Christian. You know what a Christian is? A little Christ. That's what the word Christian means, a little Christ. So when people see your life, what they see is the life of Christ church. I believe it's why he saved us. I think it's possible. I think it's attainable. But the question for us is, is how? How do you get there? How do we grow in our capacity to reflect the magnificence of Jesus Christ? Well, good thing I'm going to take three weeks to try to answer that, okay? Three weeks. But the first thing I want to say this morning, and if you're a note taker, this is point number one. This life is possible because it's personal. It has to be personal. The ability to say and mean to live as Christ begins with a personal, resounding, life-altering experience with grace. It has to be personal, a personal experience of grace. Church, everybody begins somewhere. Like Everybody begins in this passion to reflect Jesus somewhere. And that beginning is the same spot for all of us, you, me, even the Apostle Paul. You see, I think it's really tempting for us to read radical statements of abandonment like this. Right? I mean, this is radical to say everything in me, for me to live is Christ. That is a radical statement. And it's so tempting for us to read things in the text like that and go, there's no way he's talking about me. Right? That, that's reserved for Paul. Like, there's some special elite green berets for Jesus that that may apply to, but not me. I'm just ordinary. We think that to live as Christ is reserved for those that, that fast and, and pray all the time and they just read the scriptures, they live in caves, they wear camel hair, and they eat locusts and honey, right? We, we have this picture in our mind that radically sold out for Jesus can only happen for some elite Christians. But church, don't buy that fallacy. But because we do buy that fallacy, we assume it can't be for me. But listen, every journey has a beginning. And every beginning is the exact same place, a personal encounter with God's radical grace. Even Paul's. Listen, Paul recounts the beginning of his passion to reflect Jesus a handful of times throughout the New Testament. But I'm going to read to you three of his own personal recounts of, of his beginning. And I just want you to kind of figure out, what's the common denominator here? What, what's shining forth in Paul's beginning? Let's begin in Galatians chapter 1. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 14, Paul says this. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. He says, listen, I was on the fast track of religious promotion here. I was bypassing all of my peers in Judaism, but when he was pleased to reveal his son to me, when his grace finally met him, everything changed. Paul's beginning started when the grace of God met him. To the Corinthians, okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9. He tells the Corinthians, I'm the least of all the apostles. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. He says, but the grace of God made me what I am today. 
and his grace toward me was not in vain. Yo, Paul was busy in life, grinding. He was out busy. He wasn't just meditating, wasn't reflecting. He was out killing Christians. He says, but then his grace met me. And when his grace met me, he made me what I am today. Let me give you one more. This is Paul writing to his young protege, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14. He says, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. It says, the saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, but I received mercy. Paul says, I killed Christians. I was, I was the chief of all sinners, but what happened? He met grace. Grace overflowed to him, and it changed everything for him. Y'all, what's the common denominator in all of this experience? A personal encounter with grace. So church, the, the question that we have to start with in this, this passion to reflect Jesus is, have you encountered grace? Have you had a personal experience with the grace of God in the provision of Jesus Christ? Is there a period of time in your life that you can point to and clearly delineate when his grace overflowed to you? A time in your life where you became aware of the free gift of salvation purchased for you by his love and by his mercy. An encounter with grace where Jesus Christ became the personal Lord and the Savior of your life. A time where, like Paul in Galatians chapter 2 says, you know what, that's it. I have now been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. It is now Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live, every moment, every matter will now live, be lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Like, have you had that experience? Have you encountered grace personally? Because if you haven't, it, it's, it's, everything else over the next three weeks isn't going to matter to you. Every beginning starts here. You have got to make it personal. Paul says what in, in verse 21? For to me to live is Christ. For to me. It's not for you. It's not for all. Like we have to make this personal. So can you say the same? Paul made a personal resolution. And everybody likewise must experience and respond to grace personally. So how can we be the moon? How can I make a singular passion of my life to reflect Jesus? It first begins personally. It has to be personal. Okay. But point number two for us this morning is that it also has to be progressive. And some of you rolled your eyes at me because you've hijacked Webster's definition of progressive, okay? Progressive is not some social reform or some liberal ideology. Webster, who wrote the, the dictionary, would say that progressive means gradual, step by step. So when I say that to live is Christ, this passion of honoring Jesus with all that we have means it has to be progressive, that it takes place over time, that we move progressively, gradually into this life. Church, I'm just going to go ahead and warn you. I I'm I've drank a lot of coffee, and I think we may need to buckle up here because these are some hard truths for us as American Christians. Here's the, the sad reality. For a large swath of American Christians, where it began is also where it stalled. Here's what I mean by that. We encounter grace. We place our faith in Christ. We're genuinely joyful for the eternal salvation that he has provided. We've made it personal. We've made it personal. But whether it's due to faulty thinking or, or false teachers or, or just fleshly desires, what happens is we reduce this newfound life that is personal for us to being saved. We reduce it. It's just, well, I'm saved, which, which means the implications of it is it just matters for eternity. It doesn't really matter for the here and now. I've reduced it to just being saved. It's personal, which is great, but there's no progression. And, and let me give you a ton of descriptors by what I mean. 
we tend to boast in our acceptance of Jesus. Yet our lives are totally void of any allegiance to Jesus. Right? We've accepted Jesus. When did he ever ask you to do that? Show me one scripture that says, accept me. What does he do when he calls people? Follow me. So what happens is we, we say, no, I have faith. I've got faith in Jesus, but my life doesn't demonstrate any following of Jesus. I have acceptance of Jesus, but I have no allegiance to Jesus. We love that we've been purchased, but we don't have a hint of true spiritual power. We have a religion where we have trusted in God, but we have no following of Christ. And church, this is the primary reason that many of us cannot say, for to me, to live is Christ. Because we have reduced it. And we say, well, for me, to live is to believe in Christ. But if your belief has not progressively altered your behavior, or if your acceptance in him has not progressively moved to a deep allegiance to him, or if your trust in him has not led to a following of him, please listen very carefully. What you have in your life is a value for Jesus, for what he can do for you, but not a value for Jesus. Did you catch that? What you have is you have a faith that loves the gifts, but you don't like the giver. You want to seek his hands, but you don't want to seek his face. And you know, it grieves me because you are losing in this life. Because he came that you may have abundant life, not just eternal life, y'all. Abundant. And if you don't have any allegiance to him or following in him, you're missing out. You're missing out on the life that he came to purchase. You have a value for him for what he can do for you, not for him himself. I told you to buckle up. I told you I drank a lot of coffee. In Scripture, Paul calls this nullifying the grace of God. That's Galatians chapter 2. And in Corinthians, he says that many people receive the grace of God, but in vain. It's when we're informed by God's grace, but not transformed by it. It's encountering grace, but doing it superficially. Receiving the grace of God in vain pertains not, not so much to salvation. Like I'm not, It doesn't have to do with salvation. It's, it's to the loss of potential blessings in being in relationship to Jesus. Did, did that make sense? It's not so much about salvation. It's about the loss of blessing in being near to Jesus in the here and now. It's when our profession isn't supported by our practice. You see, for a long time throughout church history, uh, the, the church in different periods has had ways of categorizing this way too common phenomenon. Right In the 1930s, German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it what? Nobody read Bonhoeffer this morning? Cheap grace. He calls it cheap grace. He says that cheap grace is doctrine but void of devotion. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness, but there's no requirement of repentance, which means change. Cheap grace is a salvation without discipleship. In the late 1970s, John MacArthur and many others began to call it out as carnal Christianity. This idea that glories in the fact that we have been saved, but yet we don't have any holiness or any obedience in our lives. It's faith without following. It's salvation sold as fire insurance. Anybody? Anybody get saved under that? You know, it's like, man, I better go forward. I don't want to end up fired up, you know? And we do. We make these decisions to follow Jesus based out of fear when Jesus is the greatest treasured life has ever provided. And what he wants for us is relationship for him. So we have this whole fate of our entire lives built on this fire insurance when love for Jesus is so much greater than fear of Jesus. It's what teachers today would call the prosperity gospel. And it's so popular, y'all. 
It's, it's so appealing. And don't think for a second that prosperity thinking is just for the megachurch pastors out there flying around in their Gulf Streams, all you Gulf Stream workers. And listen, if the Lord tells you to buy one, let me know. I'm just kidding. Don't think for a second that prosperity thinking is just out there. It has infiltrated every one of you. You know why I know this? Because it plays so well to our culture, and it plays so well to our fleshly desires. Prosperity thinking is appealing because it doesn't ask us to change. It's, it's following Jesus without carrying a cross. It gives salvation all along, allowing what we desire, what we do, and how we live to go uninterrupted. It, prosperity thinking is this belief that God is so gracious, that he has saved me, and he just wants to bless me so that I can be happy. And we've been deceived. So instead of, of adopting a, a sold-out version of Christianity that says, my life exists to honor him, what we do is we, we stall and we slip into this comfortable Christianity that says, his life exists to honor me. Right? And it, it's subtle. We flip it. Instead of me going, my life exists to honor Jesus, we go, he wants to bless me. He wants to save me. He wants to benefit me. His life exists to honor me. Which is why many of us can't say, for to me, to live is Christ. We've never picked up our cross. We've never followed him. We flipped it. And church, Jesus does want you to bless. He does want to bless you. He does want to save you. He does, he does want to benefit you so that you may live in such a way to enlarge him and magnify him and reflect him. All of his benefits and all of his blessings aren't so that you can increase your square footage. It is so that maybe you increase your square footage to host more people to make a name for Jesus. All of his blessings are intended to magnify himself. To live as Christ has to be personal. has to. It has to start here, but it can't stop there. It has to progress. We have to grow. There has to be some gradual taking place where we are reflecting Jesus more today than the day than we just began. So is that true for you? Think back on the day of your salvation, July 3rd, 2007. Is Christ more evidenced in my life, with my lips, with my lives, whatever I do, every moment, every matter today than he was on July 3rd, 2007? That's the question we all need to ask, because if not, we may have stalled. We may have bought into this faulty thinking. So we should all look more like Jesus today than we first began, and it takes place progressively. And I just want to encourage you. Uh, I shared this a couple weeks ago. We're going to look at this again in Philippians 2. But this was progressive in life of Paul, too. Like, Paul wrote this radical statement, but, but later in Philippians, he also reminds us this is totally progressive. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. He says, Y'all, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. I just press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He made it personal. Jesus made me his own. So what do I do? I just press on. I try to make him more and more my own. I want to progress in this thing. He says, but I'm not perfect. I don't consider that I've made it my own already, but one thing I do, I forget what lies behind. I press on. I strain forward to what lies ahead. It's progressive. So that's point number two for us this morning. It's progressive. So let me give you one more for the day. It's also practical. To live a life that reflects Jesus, y'all, it's just unbelievably practical, unbelievably ordinary. To live as Christ isn't some like abstract, like metaphysical, hyper-spiritual Pie in the sky. I don't even know how to describe it. It's ordinary. It, it's, it's practical. A better way to say it is living as Jesus is incarnational, right? How many of you have heard that term incarnational? If you've been around the church, you've probably heard it and you're probably confused by it. 
The incarnation refers to the act of God who is a spirit, right? God who is spirit. You see God? You touch God? You hear from God? God is a spirit. But the incarnation is the act of God who is spirit and hidden from our sight, but yet putting on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. So we can touch him, we can follow him, we can hear from him. It was God who became man. He put on the flesh. The the message paraphrase says it beautifully. It says that the word God became flesh and blood and moved into our neighborhood. Isn't that beautiful? Beautiful description of the incarnation. God moved into our neighborhood. God is not aloof, y'all. He isn't distant. God doesn't sit in heaven and scoff and sit around with the Trinity and kind of look down and say, oh, these earthlings. You know, they're never going to ascend to the metaphysical realities to actually know me. But we think that sometimes. We're like, he's so far from us. He's, he's so distant. But God doesn't sit up there and scoff. No, God put on flesh, and he, and he moved into the neighborhood so that we could actually know him, so it could be relatable, so it could be incredibly practical. And this practical view of God who put on flesh and moved into our neighborhood, he taught us, right? Like we have his teachings. In most of your Bibles, they're in red. We have his teachings, and when he taught us how to follow him, did he use some like abstract, transcendent principles for us? No, he, he, he used things like seed and soil, and sheeps and wolves, and baking bread, and leaven, and treasures, and fields. Like, right? he, he used things that we are intimately familiar with so that we could know him and understand him and relate to him so that learning how to follow him would be practical. This isn't some cognitive ascent to some higher spiritual plane. It is ordinary, practical, daily living where we get to live as Christ. Somewhere along the way, we've been deceived that that living for Jesus is all about eternity. It's some philosophical understanding, but it was never intended to be that. Jesus lived incarnationally. He taught us practically, and we're to live practically as well. Let me, let me give you two ways from our text that makes honoring Jesus incredibly practical, okay? Look with me at verse 20. Paul says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage, now as always. Go ahead and underline, now as always. How is it practical? Well, it takes place in practical time. It it takes place in time. Now as always. Not some future day when I'll finally fly away, oh glory, right? That's not when we begin to live for Jesus. Like it takes place now. It takes place as always. You see, we're just so guilty of compartmentalizing our time. Here's what I mean. Some time of our week is set aside for Jesus stuff. And other time is set aside for the real stuff. That's what I hear all the time. Well, pastor, I got to get back out to the real world. We compartmentalize our time. So we come to church on Sunday and we go, man, those songs were awesome. Man, he preached the word today. That was some good Jesus time. And so for some of you super Christians, you have this thing called a quiet time where you wake up in the mornings and you read your Bible and you walk away and you go, man, that was some good Jesus time. And then you just go about your day. Church, it was never intended to be divided like that. Like it was never supposed to be compartmentalized. We don't have some sacred time and then we have some secular time. There is no some spiritual time and then we finally have some physical time or real time. There's no division. There's no compartmentalization. If you took the Apostle Paul to a cup of coffee, go to Starbucks, grab a frap, and you go, hey, Paul, how's your spiritual life? You would get a letter. (laughs) Like picture what he would... How would he even answer that? He's like, what are, you t- what are you talking about? 
My spiritual life? You mean my life? There was no compartmentalization. There's no division, but yet we do that, don't we? We, we compartmentalize. We go, this is spiritual stuff. I'm praying. That's spiritual. I'm sharing my faith. That's spiritual. I'm singing praise and worship. That's spiritual. Everything else is physical. There is no divide. That doesn't, it doesn't work that way. I bring my physical body into physical time in everything that I do. There is no divide. We compartmentalize so much. It happens here. It takes place now and always. That means every moment of your life is under the allegiance of Jesus. That means that every matter is under the allegiance of Jesus. What, every second, every hour. That means during your commute that you are honoring Jesus with your thoughts. And when that dude on Abercorn cuts you off, you are honoring Jesus with your fingers. It, it, it means... It means that during your me time, whatever that looks like, you are wanting to honor Jesus with the things that you watch. It means that that during your exercise time, you are wanting to honor Jesus with the things that you listen to. We don't compartmentalize. Every moment, every matter takes place. Now, as always, it happens in physical time. Unbelievably practical. Every moment. But let me give you point number two why it's practical. It's also practical because it occurs with our physical bodies. Church, it occurs with your body. To live as Christ takes place in my body. Look at at verse 20 with me again. It says, but now as always, Christ will be honored. Where? In my body. Here's what this means. It means that just as we're guilty of compartmentalizing, we are also guilty of spiritualizing. Right? We, we spiritualize things. I want to grow in my relationship with Jesus. So, Pastor, what do I need to do? What, how do I add things to my spiritual life? Growing as a reflection of Jesus is, is really not about adding spiritual things to your life. It's just inviting Jesus into every moment of your life. What Jesus knew in the incarnation, what Paul knew writing to these churches is that of life is lived in the ordinary, in in the mundane, in the monotony. Like we think our spiritual lives take place when I have some vision or or some transcendent dream of God or I hear a word from God or I felt a certain feeling in worship, right? We spiritualize things. And maybe that happens to you, right? Maybe you have these deeply spiritual experiences, but what? What make 2% of your life? 1%? Half a percent? How, how much of your life does that define your living? 98% of life is just lived in the ordinary, lived in the monotony. Shopping, parenting, going to school, eating dinner, commuting to work, right? Cleaning house, doing laundry, dealing with kids that cry. It's just ordinary life. It, 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 this is where life takes place. But listen, here's the secret. It's practical because a relationship with Jesus is something that we get to do. We get to do all of those ordinary things with him. This is deep calling out to deep, okay? We want to live for him. Have you thought about doing life with him? It's different. But it's not like, oh, I I did life with him when I read my quiet time. I'm not talking about that. Let me tell you what this looks like in my life, because pastors are as guilty of this compartmentalization and spiritualization as anybody else, okay? I'm going to be very transparent for just a second. Over the last 18 months, I cannot tell you how many times I have yearned to just get a cup of coffee with somebody. 
and just unload these beautiful burdens that come with the territory of pastoral ministry. And oftentimes what's going on in my heart isn't beautiful. Okay, it's just burdens and I'm weary and I'm hurting and I just, I just want to like unload it with somebody and I just, I just need somebody that's safe enough I can just talk to about that and they're not going to tweet it, right? Or, or put it on Facebook or whatever that looks like. I just want a place that's safe that I can just, just vent the ugliness of my heart of what I engage with, okay? And no, I'm not, I know that there's space for even pastors to have friendships. Don't email me, okay? But lately as I've felt that yearning, I have sensed the whisper of Jesus go, why not me? Like, why not me? And I've had to wrestle. Why? Like, why? Why am I so slow to unload this ugliness of my life with Jesus? Well, well, two things. I can't see him. There's this, there's this thing about having, having somebody sitting in a cup of coffee. You can, you can feel and it becomes more real. And, and so I've bought into this belief because, because it's not here and it has to be something transcendent that he, he doesn't want to be invited into the life that I live. The other thing is the things I want to say aren't very spiritual. Right? So he, he must not even care about that. Y'all, it couldn't be further from the truth. It couldn't be further from the truth. He wants all of it. He wants us to live our life with him. Not just for him, but with him. We can't fall prey to this, this lie that everything has to be spiritual if it needs to include Jesus. No, it needs to be physical to include Jesus. He wants to be a part of it every moment, every matter. My life lived as a pastor is, is practical, and Jesus wants to do it with me. So don't fall prey to this divided, compartmentalized, overly spiritual life. He came that you may have life and life abundantly. That's today. That's, that's when you go home and eat lunch. That, that's, that's when you go pick up your kids. Like it's here. It's now. What we have to learn to do is just cultivate what it looks like to do it with him. And y'all, it just, just be honest with you, like as Jesus is whispering this to me and he's like, why not me? I feel like such a toddler, it, which is just killing my flesh. It's just revealing my pride that I don't like to be incompetent in things. Right? I don't like to feel like I'm failing in things. But when he invites us into it, it's into a relationship, not to a performance. It's a beautiful process. It's actually the process of learning to do this with him that makes us desire to do it with him even more. I hope that was coherent. I, I think it was. Church, to live as Christ is a way of life that is unbelievably practical. It's, it's progressive, and it has to be personal. But it is not easy. It's not soft. In fact, it is extremely costly. I understand, I understand why we want to reduce it to just believing because it's going to cost your comfort. It will require sacrifice of every single allegiance you have other than Jesus Christ. Following him will require cutting things out of your lives that compete with him and keep you from honoring him. Because the singular ambition for all of us is that we would be able to say with integrity, for me to live is Christ, not to live is Christ and, right? We can't add anything to it. We can't say, well, I want to live to Christ and my career. Because if, if you did, if you added your career to it, then what is your life when your career is over, right? If you say, well, I want to live to Christ and my family. Well, God forbid, what happens if something happens to your family? What is your life then? You say, well, well me to live is Christ and the things that I own, the possessions that I have. Then what is your life if all those things get burned up today? You can't add anything to it. We cannot live to honor Jesus and ourselves and other things. So be warned. 
It's practical, it's progressive, it's personal, but it is costly. But it's worth it. It's so worth it. In fact, it's like a man who found a treasure hidden in a field. When you find that treasure in your joy, you'll go sell all that you have just to buy the entire field. I really believe Jesus meant what he said when he said, if anyone would really come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life or divide his life or spiritualize his life or try to add me to his life, you'll lose it. You'll never, full, you'll never experience the fullness of it. Whoever loses his life for Jesus' sake, man, you'll save it. You'll find it. You'll experience it. So let me pray for us, and our team will come back up and lead us through a song of response. Why don't you stand up with me while I pray? Father, I just come on behalf of myself, my family, uh, this church, just acknowledging how guilty we are without, without even realizing it, that we compartmentalize, that we divide, that we over-spiritualize, which means that we just live 98% of our days apart from you. Will you show us what it means to live life with you? We're, we're coming to you like the disciples did and says, we, we don't know how to pray. We don't know what we're doing. We're coming to you with just, just childlike dependency and humility, asking you to teach us. Teach us to live life with you. As we're going to see later in this text, you've given us the supply of your Holy Spirit. You've given us everything that we need to learn to do this, but are we willing to make the right costs? Help us to sacrifice the things that need to be sacrificed, to cut the things that need to be cut. Help us to live a life with integrity that means to live as Christ. Help us to be the moon. Help this church to be the moon. That when this community sees you, to sees, sees this church, they do see you. They see your grace. They see your goodness. They see your forgiveness. They see your mercy. Not our perfection, but they see yours. May we have lives that reflect you. We thank you for this example. We pray that you would progressively make it truth in our lives. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.